All right, yo, we have arrived. We have arrived to the most skipped past portion of Paul's letter to the Roman churches. And it is here in verses 3 through 16. This is the list of a bunch of people that Paul wants the Roman churches to greet. And I'm not going to lie to you. I was very, 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 very tempted to just skip past this part and get to the next section because the next section is really cool. There's actually some really cool things that I cannot wait to talk about next week. But we, we, have, we have to look at this seemingly boring portion of Paul's letter because believe it or not, there are some gems that we can pull out from this list of names. And I don't know about you, but this list on just first glance, it looks to me a lot like how the genealogies in the Old Testament look. Boring and useless to, to modern readers. However, the Old Testament genealogies, they're actually very important. And oftentimes they're crafted in very particular ways. If you look at the genealogies of Jesus in the Gospels, and you compare them together in the in the two separate Gospels, I believe in Matthew and Luke are the ones that have the genealogies, you'll notice that they're different. Or if you compare them to the Old Testament and you look through and you go, wait, uh, I, I, I think the Gospels kind of skipped a few people, or they kind of added in a few people, and it doesn't make sense. And when we realize what they're doing with the genealogies is a lot of times they um, add certain people or leave out certain people to get a certain number, a number that has theological meaning, or to derive a certain meaning that um, Jesus had some Gentile descendants, or sorry, some Gentile ancestors within his genealogy, and they craft it in a very specific way, and that's a lot of times how the Old Testament genealogies work. And if you devote enough study and time to them, and if you really start to know your Hebrew Bible better, a lot of these genealogies, you'll start to notice some things in them. And this list from Paul, although I don't think he's crafting it in you know some super deep uh, theological way, it still operates in a similar way, namely that if you pay attention to it and you look at it as more than just a list of names, you can get a lot of good gems from it. A lot of things that we can learn and a lot of things that we can apply to our own lives. Because we have to understand that the people on this list, although they may mean nothing to us today, they would have meant something to the people in the Roman churches, the people who lived in that context. It'd be similar if I were writing you a letter and I included a bunch of people and names that you were familiar with, or I included names like, hey, be on the lookout for Peter Parker, Bruce Wayne, Elvis Presley, and Michael Jackson. You would, you would automatically, upon reading that, you'd have a portrait of who these people are, what they're known for, their reputation, and their subsequent actions. And if somebody 2,000 plus years removed that didn't know our context was digging around and started reading that list of names, they really wouldn't understand what was going on. And so they'd have to do some research, and that is the task for this episode. Because there's a lot of names in this list. A lot of names. And yes, admittedly, many of these 
we unfortunately only hear about them here in Romans 16. But that doesn't mean that they're completely useless. Because the people that Paul was writing to would have known about these people. They would have been able to understand their context and their history and their actions and their reputation. But there are a few names in this list that we do know about and that we have heard. And they can be a piece to a larger portrait of the puzzle that will help us understand what Paul's talking about and the character of Paul and who Paul surrounded himself with. And for our purposes today, we're going to be focusing on two people specifically out of this long list. So this episode may be a little bit shorter, and we hear about them here in verses 3 through 4, but we're going to go ahead and read through the whole thing, 3 through 16. We'll do an in-depth look at the first two people we meet, then after that, we'll quickly go through, point out some gems for those last people. All right, so like we always do, we're going to read through it, verses 3 through 16 in Romans chapter 16. Let's get it. Paul says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epanetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord. Tryphania and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobas, and Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, I know I butchered those names. And you know what? You would have as well. (laughs) So let's just hop into this. Let's get right into it. Verses 3 through 4. Once again, Paul says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. So here we meet our first names in this long list of greetings. And right off the bat, we're told some pretty important details. So. Not only do we know that this is a couple, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Now, in in verse 3, Paul writes it as Prisca. That's how it gets translated. And Prisca in the Greek is the short form for Priscilla. And so we know that this is talking about Priscilla, a woman, and Aquila, a man. They're a husband and wife. They're a couple. And this is a couple that Paul tells us he's worked with in the past. And not only that, but they risked their lives for him. That's interesting. Because typically, if if we just skim through this, this section, like, I mean, most of us probably have when we read this long list, <laughs> we would just move on and, and we would miss out on some very profound things about this couple. But that's not what we're going to do today. We're going to hop into this and see what we can learn. So, you know, it's really cool 
to see continuity between Paul's letters and the events that Luke recorded in Acts. We talked about this before um, a while back in an episode called Undesigned Coincidences, how completely unrelated parts of the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, by different writers at different times telling completely different stories would have details that would actually match up and prove that each other's were true and that they were giving honest eyewitness testimony. And here is somewhat of an undesigned coincidence because Paul here is telling us about this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. And Luke, in a completely separate writing, tells us about Priscilla and Aquila who met with Paul. And sometimes I can get so caught up in the theology and the implications of letters like this that I forget about the actual history, like real people with real events. And and if we look back in Acts, in chapter 18, this is where Luke talks about this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and how they met Paul and some of the things that went down. Let's look at it. Acts chapter 18, verse 1 through 4, says this, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Isn't that kind of cool? Paul meets Aquila who's a Jew, who was exiled from Rome because the Caesar hated the Jews. And this is the same exact event that is what is causing a lot of the division within the Roman church that Paul has been writing about for the last 16 chapters, is that the Jews who were once in Rome, who most likely were some of the first people in the Roman churches, they were exiled. They got kicked out of Rome because the Caesar, Claudius, hated Jews and he wanted them gone. And when he ended up dying, five years later, the Jews returned to Rome and now all of a sudden the the church is now full of Gentiles. And there are Gentiles that aren't observing the Torah because, well, they're Gentiles. And that caused a lot of the division that Paul is having to, to fix and sure up here in his letter to the Roman people. And here we learn that, well, Paul met one of those Jews who ended up getting exiled from his home because the Caesar didn't like Jews at all. And this led to a a relationship and and a partnership between Priscilla and Aquila and Paul. And we have to remember that the community that they're in, the culture that they're in, it is community-driven. It's about the collective. It's about the group, people taking care of each other. And you can see this because Luke tells us in Acts that, well, Priscilla and Aquila had them stay with them. They invited them into his home to stay with them and to work. And they did that because, well, they shared something in common. They they were tent makers. They all had the same trade. And I don't know if this is something that we've ever covered on the podcast before, but um, some of you may already know that Paul, on the side, to actually help financially support himself, it was like a, it's like a side job. He made tents. He was a tent maker. And we hear about his reasoning for doing this and for supporting himself without a bunch of help from other people. We hear about this a few times in his letter to the Corinthians, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and then later in chapter 9. I actually want to read it because it 
It's pretty interesting, and it has some important implications for why Paul is doing this. He says this in 1 Corinthians 4, 11-13. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When, re- when reveled, we bless. When persecuted, we endured. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So Paul informs them, hey, we're, we're poorly dressed. You know, him and the people that he's working with, you know, we hunger and we thirst, but we still, we still work, and we still work with our hands. He goes on a few chapters later, chapter 9, verse 11 through 15, he says, Since we've planted spiritual seed among you, aren't we entitled to a harvest of physical food and drink? If you support others who preach to you, Shouldn't we have an either even greater right to be supported? But we have never used this right. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. Don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple? And those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. Yet I have never used any of these rights, and I am not writing this to suggest that I want to start now. In fact, I would rather die than lose my right to boast about preaching without charge. So Paul is making tents, and he's working because he decides that he wants to support himself instead of living off of the aid of the churches. And this is for several reasons. One, as he states, is that he doesn't want to be a burden on any of them. And he doesn't want to seem like he is like these other false preachers who are doing it for the money. He wants to let them know that, hey, I have every single right, since I am preaching the gospel, to ask that you financially support me. But I'm not going to do it. I don't want to be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. So that's one reason. And it's an honorable reason. The second reason is that if Paul accepted financial support from the churches, the churches could consider themselves to be Paul's patron. And if you remember last week's episode, we talked about the importance of patronage within this ancient community. We looked at Phoebe and how Phoebe was a patron, how she most likely supported Paul's ministry financially or either gave him a place to stay or got him connected with um, important, powerful people that could help him. And because of that, Paul is showing her gratitude since she is his patron by letting the church know that you need to help her with whatever she may need. Patronage was very, very important in this culture. And if you have a bunch of churches that view themselves as Paul's patron, then naturally they would expect that if they need the help of their client, Paul, that if he is a gracious client, he would come to their beckoning call whenever it is that they needed. And that would be an obstacle to the gospel being spread. If all of a sudden these churches decide, hey, Paul, uh, we want you to come back here and we want you to preach. We want you to settle this, 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 and this. Instead of Paul being able to travel and continue to spread the gospel, like he's told us in the last chapter, is his mission to do. So those are the two reasons why Mainly, why Paul wanted to support himself financially is to not be a burden and to not have certain churches feel 
like they now have leverage over Paul or that Paul owes them something since they view him as their client. So it's because of this that Paul made tents. And this led him to staying with Priscilla and Aquila because they made tents as well. And knowing that Paul stayed with them, it, it doesn't seem like anything crazy when you just read it. But if you look at the implications of it, at least for our culture today, that's really weird. Like that is, that, that's odd because remember, Priscilla and Aquila, they're newcomers to Corinth. They just got exiled from their homeland and they're now having to settle in a new town. And they feel compelled to let this stranger live with them. And I know for that culture at that time, like, that was normal. Because they're, they're very communally driven. But can we be honest? Like, how many of y'all would move into a new city? And you got, you got your wife or you got your husband. And you're in a new city. And you would let some random dude who just so happens to work the same job as you do, and who also is talking to you and convincing you about this brand new religion <laughs> that, he, that he's believing, you would just let that dude live with you. It, it's so funny, I guess, when you put it in those words to see the cultural differences, but it really shows the heart of Priscilla and Aquila. And, and this is why Paul is able to mention them in his greeting and to let people know that they risked their lives for him because Paul was not a popular guy. Death threats, imprisonment, being whipped and persecuted. And having Paul, who was viewed and treated that way, live with you, it wouldn't be good for your reputation within the neighborhood. And so when Paul says that they risked their necks for him, he's not just saying that to say it, he's being real. This was, this was a real threat that they faced. But not only did they willfully let Paul stay with them and embrace him, they also did work in sharing the gospel. If we look at Acts chapter 18 again, a little bit later to the end in verses 24 through 28, look at this interaction that Priscilla and Aquila have. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. There's a lot of things that we could talk about here, um, but for sake of time, I want to focus on the actions of Priscilla and Aquila. Because they hear this dude, Apollos, and we're told that, man, I mean, Apollos, can he can speak. This boy preaching, he probably getting loud, probably got all the right metaphors and analogies. He can command the stage. And he also knows the scripture. He knows the Hebrew Bible. But the problem is, is that Apollos only knows about Jesus up to the baptism of John, which is like, 
one twentieth of the entire story about Jesus. And like he, he's missing kind of the real important parts. Um, and there's so much about Jesus that Apollos just has not heard yet. He doesn't know about all the miracles. He doesn't know about the fact that he is the son of God. He doesn't know about his death and resurrection, all of that. And what's crazy is, is that even though he knew none of that about Jesus, it seems, at least how Luke is telling us here, it seems that he still understood that Jesus was the Messiah, the one that had been prophesied, the one that the entire Hebrew Bible had been looking forward to and waiting for. I mean, we're told that Apollos accurately taught the things concerning Jesus. And to me, this shows that if you're a careful and attentive reader of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, you can see the messianic profile fulfilled in Jesus by only reading a few pages into the Gospels. Just hearing about Jesus and the baptism of John, I, I promise you, trust me, there is so much there that automatically points to the fact that this is the one that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18. This is the one that Malachi was looking forward to. This is the Messiah that the entire Hebrew Bible and the entire story of Israel has been leading up to and looking forward to, and it's found in Jesus. And Apollos was able to understand that just by hearing about Jesus and his interaction with John the Baptist. And although this was great and he was sharing it with the people, it was still incomplete knowledge. There's still so much, the really important stuff about Jesus, his death and his resurrection, that Apollos didn't know about. And so Priscilla and Aquila, upon hearing this, stepped forward and explained the full gospel to him. And that action that they took is, is really intriguing to me. Because for many today, and I got to be honest, myself included, it would make us feel really awkward to try and just go and correct someone's theology, especially a stranger in person, <laughs> and tell them that, hey, you're a little bit off. Hey, you know what, what you're saying, I, I know you're passionate about it. I know it, it may seem like it's what's right, but y you got it wrong. Your belief system is incorrect. And unfortunately, we live in a culture today that places comfort over correctness. And you're looked down upon if you attempt to tell anyone at all that their beliefs may be incomplete or incorrect. And this wasn't the case with Priscilla and Aquila. And it wasn't the case because they cared more about the person and the message of the gospel than they did about the potential backlash for correcting incorrect beliefs. I mean, look, the bottom line is, is that we all can't be right. All the belief systems, all the views, all, all the different religions, they can't all be right. Because they all claim to be exclusive. They all claim to be the right religion. And you may even have people who claim, oh, that's why I believe that they're all right. But that's the problem is that they can't all be right because they all claim that each other is wrong. So there has to be 
a true belief. One of these has to be right. They can't all be right. One of them has to be right and the rest have to be wrong. And in order for us to find the truth, we have to talk and discuss these things. And and if somebody is walking around with incorrect beliefs, it's not doing them or anybody else any good if we just allow that to continue to happen without at least telling them about the truth and what it is they're missing. And when Priscilla and Aquila did this, I mean, look how it plays out. We're told that Apollos powerfully was able to refute the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Because Priscilla and Aquila were able to correctly show him the true gospel, the full gospel, he was able to go out and publicly debate with the non-believers, showing them from their own scriptures, from their own belief system, that the Christ, the Messiah that they've been looking for, that that was fully fulfilled in Jesus. And this was only possible because they were willing to share the truth, no matter what the potential costs could have been. What else do we learn about Priscilla and Aquila? Well, in verse 5, Paul tells us that he wants the Roman people to greet those, the church that is in their house. The church that's in their house. That may seem weird to some of us because for some of us, we think that the church is a building. So how could a building be in their house? But the, the church, biblically, is not a building. It's not a place you go. The, the church is the body of believers, the people. And in this instance, the church is the people that meet in Priscilla and Aquila's home. And I think this is something that can be forgotten. The, the nature of the church. That gets easily forgotten, how the church was described and what the nature of the church was biblically in the New Testament. Because the church wasn't a building. It was never referred to as a building. It wasn't founded under a special name or an organization. I mean, the, in, the entire embodiment of a building for worship was found in the temple. And that was the culture that the Jews lived in. And one of the most important things that Jesus did is that he tore down the temple and its necessity, all the things that it stood for, a, a place for heaven and earth to meet, a place for God to dwell, a place for the forgiveness of sins to take place, a place for humanity to be in the presence of God, a place that was holy, a place that was symbolized as being an Eden-like sanctuary. All of that which was once encompassed within the physical temple got destroyed and got rebuilt in the image of Christ. Christ fulfilled that. Christ became that temple. And we're told later on by Paul himself that, that we, the, the body of Christ, that we are the temple. So all those things were fulfilled in, in Jesus. And it's just so silly to me that, that that place of worship, that sanctuary where heaven and earth met, the place where God dwelled, it got destroyed for a reason. It got destroyed so that it can be accessible 
to any and all people who come to Christ, not just by those who can make it to a physical building. And it's sad to see that that those who believe that you have to attend a physical building for church seemingly are undoing the very thing that Christ undid, which was getting rid of the need and the necessity for a physical place for God to dwell, because that's found in Jesus. And by extension of that, if the body of Christ is viewed as the temple, then that's found in the gathering of the children of God. And the church was never meant to to meet in a large building. At least not originally. I mean, they met in people's homes. This idea of the body of Christ gathering in its original culmination, it was communally driven. They met in people's homes. They had meals together. They would talk with each other, and they would learn the gospel in a community setting. In a setting where the one who would have been reading the scriptures or teaching was not untouchable or inaccessible, was not above reproach, was not above correction. It, it, it was a setting where you knew that you were a part of a true community. Everybody was on equal playing grounds. Everybody had specific gifts, and those gifts were used to enhance the, the gathering of the children of God, but it was not meant to have one elevated as superior or untouchable or other than everybody else. And Paul talks so much about the body of Christ and in the church being symbolized in familial language. I mean, we talked about this a little bit last week. And the way that the church met really embodied this familial setting. I mean, think about your family gatherings. But imagine that the conversations that you had at your family gatherings was just solely centered around Jesus and the gospel. And think about how the people would be more than just faces that got lost in a crowd. They would be people that you considered to be family, that you interacted with, that you had intimate familial settings with. This was the the design of church. This is how church played out within the Bible. And it's really unfortunate for me to take a step back and see how that gets lost in the modern way that we gather in church. And I really do wish that we could find this model of church again. But anyway, that was Priscilla and Aquila. We learned quite a bit about the two people, this this couple that Paul shared many things about. And so I want to fly through some of the rest of these. Uh, there's really not much to say about the rest of these, but there's still some things that we can point out. And I'm going to butcher these names just like I did the first time. And you know what? That's okay. I don't speak Greek, so we'll be all right. <laughs> We're going to go through verses, uh, the rest of verse 5 all the way through 13, or sorry, 16. Paul says, Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. So this is pretty cool because Paul is telling us about the very first person who gave his life to Christ when Paul went to do ministry in Asia. And I think it's really cool because how many, how many uh, self-proclaimed ministers or pastors or, or anybody, I mean, even, even people who um, really are doing good things for the Lord, I wonder how many of them 
could point out and remember the name of the first person that they were able to bring to Christ. I mean, maybe there's a lot. That, I mean, maybe there's not. I, I, I don't know, but I think that's really cool that Paul remembered that. Because Paul was converting people left and right, baby. He said, you're a believer. You're a believer. Hey, you in the back. You're a believer, right? Yeah, Paul. Great. <laughs> but Paul remembered the, the first person. This just shows that for Paul, it wasn't about the numbers. For Paul, it wasn't about um, filling seats or, or having more numbers that you can share to your church to, you know, show them that they're making great progress and all that. For Paul, it was about the people. I'm sure that that this guy Epinatus isn't the only name that Paul remembers. I'm sure Paul remembered many, many people's names because for Paul, it was seeing God's lost children be reunited with him. And Paul took that on a very personal level. In verse 6, he says, Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and fellow prisoners, they are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Now this one, this one sparks a lot of debate. Seems like a throwaway line, but this one sparks a lot of debate. Andronicus and Junia, uh, some translations, older ones that may have not been revised, or some older scholars, if you read, they will try and say that uh, Andronicus and Junia, that Junia is actually supposed to be Junius, uh, a male name. And when we look at the Greek, and scholars have debated this, but it's almost a consensus, like a, a full-on consensus, and almost every newly revised translation that you read will say Andronicus and Junia, pointing that Junia is a woman. So you have Andronicus and Junia. Uh, they could be married. They could be brother and sister. Uh, we don't really know for sure, but Paul refers to them as his kinsmen and his fellow prisoners. So they were in prison with Paul. And then this line here says, they are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Now this line here is what has sparked a lot of debate. And depending on how you interpret the Greek, really, really has huge implications for New Testament followers. So in the ESV, it says that they are well known to the apostles. I wonder what some other translations say. I don't think they're going to say anything too different, but I want to see. So NASB says that they are outstanding in the view of the apostles. NLT says they are highly respected among the apostles. Uh, let's see what CSB says. They're noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles. Okay. So these all kind of have similar ones. The, the discussion and the disagreement comes with the phrase, they are well known to the apostles. So on surface level reading, this would just mean that, hey, the apostles, we know about them. Uh, these two people, Andronicus and Junia, they're well known. Maybe they, you know, work with them. Maybe they, you know, hung out. Who knows? But they're well known to the apostles. But uh, in the Greek, other scholars will argue that this phrase should actually be rendered something more along the lines of, they are well known as apostles. Which, if that's the case, obviously has huge implications. Because this is now telling us that there's a female, Junia, who was an apostle. And if that's the case, then that drastically changes the traditional view on women in ministry 
um, I mean, it would completely change how that has been held out in tradition. And there's people who are dead set on the fact that Andronicus and Junia were apostles. Um, they have a ton of papers and scholarly work. There's also scholars who will say otherwise. I don't really think that this and kind of having an unclear phraseology in the Greek is really solid ground either way. But nevertheless, at the very least, they were really well known. We can assume that they probably did really good work for the gospel. And um, like Paul said, they were in Christ before him. So it's really important. These are important people. Verse 8, Paul says, Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. He says, Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord. Tryphania and Tryphosa, greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Hmm. I want to read verse 12 again. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphenia and Tryphosa. So Paul just refers to these people as, they're just workers in the Lord. They're workers. But then when it comes to Persis, Paul says, greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. There's a distinction. It's subtle, but there is a distinction. For Tryphenia and Tryphosis, Paul just refers to them as workers in the Lord. But for, for Persis, Paul points out that he's a hard worker <laughs> for the Lord. And I love how Paul isn't afraid to just simply point out the fact that, yeah, uh, this guy Persis, he's a harder worker than Tryphania and Tryphosa. Like, why, why should Paul be afraid to say that? Why can't we acknowledge when somebody does better or harder work? opposed to other people. That's just something in our culture that I guess would kind of get looked down upon, that you would point out that somebody does a job better or that they work harder than somebody else. But, I mean, this is effort that should be rightfully applauded if there is more effort being put in than these other two people. And I love that Paul's not afraid to point that out. He says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. That's interesting. Especially um, for the older men and women who may think that their ability to help in ministry or their ability to have an impact within the family of God is, is long gone. And for, for here, I mean, Rufus's mother apparently had a huge impact on Paul, that he considers her to be a mother. And you can only imagine how much her love and care would have helped Paul throughout his ministry. Would have helped Paul, I don't know, when he was getting whipped and beaten and accused and threatened with, with his life. For Paul to know that he has a mother figure where he could probably go up and, and get a hug if he needed or have a meal prepared or have someone to talk to. That just goes to show that you don't have to be young and fully physically capable. You don't have to have all the knowledge about the Bible and be deep in biblical studies to actually have a huge effect on the gospel and a huge effect in ministry. If you just, if you just act in a way that you can be seen as a mother or a father figure, 
to those who follow Christ, I mean, this this certainly had a huge impact on Paul's life. Verse 14, greet Asyncritus, Phlegon Hermes, Patrobas Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is another example of how there are certain instructions within the Bible that are for a very specific context and specific people. This was something that they did in their culture. Greeting each other with a holy kiss. Dudes would kiss dudes on the cheek or forehead. Man would kiss woman. Woman would kiss man. Children, all of that. They just greeted each other with a holy kiss. This, this is how they did it in their culture. Um, but certainly, Paul does not expect modern readers today to greet everybody with a holy kiss. Because if you did that today, you'd probably get slapped or punched or arrested. Um, don't do that. <laughs> this is a great example of how there are many, 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 many commands and instructions that are given in the New Testament that are not meant for us because these letters were not written to us. They were written to the people they were written to, but we can still derive some good principles from it. But in this instance, probably not a good idea to just randomly greet people with a holy kiss because that is not what we do in our culture. Anyway, I hope you all enjoyed this and I hope you're able to see how just on just a a fairly surface level study, we can actually get some good gems out of something that otherwise seemed fairly vague and boring. But hey, I am excited for next week's episode. We got some great stuff to hop into. And I'll see y'all next week. Peace.